0: Hi everyone, David here. Thank you so much for listening to What Matters. We hope you enjoy the show. Before we begin, if you and maybe some of your colleagues would like premium access to the What Matters podcast and want to read or listen to the essential in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to com/subscribe. To find out more, hello and welcome to episode 12 of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight, Climate and Energy on the energy transition to a decarbonized economy. My name is David Weston, and with me once again are Michaela Hole from Agora Energy Vendor and Jan Rosenau of the Regulatory Assistance Project. How are we, team?
1: Hi. I think Jan is in Vienna. Maybe. No, he is. I'm in Brussels, and I think all of Brussels will have to be repowered as of next week. It's very busy with the repower EU coming out. And at some point, everyone else needs to be repowered personally, I think. I think
0: so. Everyone's looking forward maybe to their summer break already. Yeah, Jan, where are you dialing in from?
2: Well, well, I'm in, in indeed in Vienna, and it's 28 degrees outside. Um, I left Oxford this, yesterday, and it was cold and rainy. And now I'm here in in you know, what should be August temperatures, which is, is it's kind of nice, but it's also concerning because it's too warm for this time of year in Vienna Um, and I know I've given a keynote speech at the Decarb Cities Conference which is about 250 people talking about how we can decarbonize heating in particular in cities Um, so there I think is a good link to this podcast which will partly touch on some of those issues as well
0: absolutely as Jan says as we shift to net zero emission economy it's becoming increasingly clear that there needs to be a holistic and all encompassing view of where we need to go. The silos of yesterday's energy system are not fit for a 21st century clean energy universe. Do we need to rearrange the energy system to cater for our modern generation and energy needs? To discuss whole energy systems thinking, we are joined by Ditlev Engel, CEO of Energy Systems at DMV, the Classification Society and Energy Industry Research Group. Before joining DNB, Ditlev was also CEO at wind turbine manufacturer Vestas and coatings manufacturer Hempel. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ditlev. Thank you for having me. To kick off then, uh, we're just wondering how you might describe the energy transition uh, and where you see uh, it all happening right now.
3: So I think we need to distinctions between short and long-term so I'm sure later on we will talk about the the crisis and the tragedy from Ukraine and how that will impact the energy systems. But before getting to to that, I would say we are looking at a world that, from our point of view, is going to electrify at an unprecedented uh, base, as actually anything is going to be electrified as we see it. Uh, and, uh, and that means we will see a massive uptake of uh, renewables, et cetera. Uh, in, and that is driven, um, not just by climate, but definitely also by, by cost. So, so we are looking into a world where there will be many different things happening. Um, but I think maybe one of the things, at least that I've seen that have surprised many is when we have said that we do think that the energy demand in the world is going to sort of peak in the early thirties. And I will come back and explain why. And that is something to be very mindful of. That because this will be the first time nearly in, in our history as mankind that we will start to see that the energy demand in the world will, will, will level off because so far it has, has only been growing. So we are looking into some, I would say very interesting uh, dynamics that we all need to, need to handle. And of course, we cannot speak about this without talking about the impact on the climate and the need for uh, reducing the emissions uh, very, very fast. So. So that's the kind of the picture we're looking into.
0: Has the invasion of Ukraine, Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, over the sort of first half of this year, um, changed the changed sort of the things we're talking about and the things we're looking into at all?
3: So we um, very recently published a study just to look at uh, how can Europe handle this uh, situation, and we and you can of course put various assumptions in there. And obviously, if the gas was being cut off tomorrow, then that, of course, uh, would be not something the EU could handle. But we looked into scenarios where we, for instance, said that if there was a reduction in in the gas uh, about 80% in in 2023 and 100% in 2025, will we, with our current resources, uh, being able to cope with that as an EU combined by increasing, for instance, import of LNG, Uh, burning more coal, uh, getting more natural gas uh, from existing operations and so on. And our view is that it will be possible uh, to sort of scramble through that, uh, uh, even in in this particular scenario. But what we are also seeing is that uh, we have to remember that before the invasion happened, what was the trajectory that we were on in Europe? And uh, the fit for fifty five and the acceleration of uh, build out of renewables uh, etc, uh, we actually think that this will now be further accelerated uh, and and that I think also when we talk about decarbonization would of course be be positive. so again, in the very short term uh, it will definitely be challenging, but we don't see that the invasion of Ukraine is going to derail. The energy transition that has been kick-started i think the big question is will it be further accelerated on this uh, tragic background
2: could i come in there um I, I i just have a follow-up question on something you said a minute ago you, you mentioned you think electricity demand is going to grow significantly we're going to electrify a lot of end users And I think it'll just be interesting because we had this topic on the podcast quite a few times. We talked about electrification of heating, for example, on one of them. Um, But it'll be interesting, I think, to hear your perspective as to why you think electrification will play a significant role. Um, uh, Why are we not doing something else instead? Why do you think electricity um, is kind of key to the puzzle of the energy transition? I would love to hear your perspective on that.
3: Sure. So every year at DNV, we uh, make a publication which is called the Energy Transition Outlook. And if any of the listeners would like to have a look at it, you can download it for free at the DNV website. Now, the Energy Transition Outlook is not made to scenarios that you would like to see. And there are many forecasts out there on different scenarios, but we only have one forecast. And the forecast is driven on cost. And not just the cost of today, but also the expected cost in the future. So, for instance, when we say we think everything, we electrify. And that is first and foremost because the cost of wind and solar will continue to fall. That means from a pure cost perspective, renewables are standing in a strong position. The fact that they also have a good carbon footprint is, of course, a, a an additional benefit. But if you look at, for instance, the transport sector, We expect that the cost uh, for electrification of the transport sector in 26, 27, it will be cheaper to produce an EV than producing a combustion engine car. And that means that you need to pay more if you want a car running on petrol. And so what we are forecasting is basically when you scale things, not what they cost today, but when you start to scale them and you start to scale the systems What are then going to be the tipping points? So when I say that I think energy demand is going to level out in around the 30s, it's very much got to do with the fact that the electrification of the transport sector will be massive. Uh, Both uh, two-wheelers, three-wheelers, not to forget when we talk about the global world, we normally only talk about four-wheelers in Europe, uh, but also uh, the bigger transport. So I think that's a very important driver. And that, from our point of view, also will mean that oil demand will also peak around there, simply driven by a massive shift in the way the transport sector will, will behave, you can say. Secondly, um, there's no doubt that the integration of systems and digitalization uh, and energy efficiency will mean that we will have much uh, uh, less losses in the system. So when you move to renewables instead of coal, you will actually have much less losses in, and you thereby will become more energy efficient uh, in your total. So we are seeing that everything that can be directly electrified will be electrified because it will be the cheapest way of doing it. So we look at this from a cost perspective. Uh, the key question, therefore, is will the rules and regulation allow this to take place? Now, that is a different discussion whether the technology can do it versus whether we will let it do it. And that's why we normally say at DNV that we are technology optimistic, but somewhat regulatory pessimistic, i.e. that things will be stuck in permitting and planning uh, instead of letting it go. So when we look at the totality of the system, we actually do believe that we do have what we need in the toolbox. But the key question is then how to build the most cost-efficient systems. And I very often hear the discussion, but what does A cost versus B, cost versus C? That's not really the right discussion. You need to build a broad portfolio because you will need all of it. And you need to make sure that you then have the most optimal portfolio in order to make it the most cost-efficient way. So everything you can directly electrify, you should. The things that you cannot electrify, which we call the hard to abate sectors, like maritime like uh, aviation uh uh and the let's say major industries very energy intensive industries you will obviously need to go down uh, for instance the hydrogen path now that of course will cost significantly more but that is the only way that you can decarbonize these sectors so it's not a question of does hydrogen cost more for instance than today than bunker fuels that is will be the cheapest option on the table if you want to decarbonize it.
1: May I uh, pick up the comment you made that you are regulatory pessimistic? Sometimes I am that too. Um, Maybe you've had a look already at what the commission is uh, supposed to put on the table next week on repower EU. Um, Are you also pessimistic or do you think it is really encouraging energy system change as you would like to see it and as you just said with a big focus on electrification. I saw a letter yesterday from the Electrification Alliance asking for more focus, for example, and saying it's not enough. I,
3: I will have to say I haven't seen that yet, so I can't comment on that uh, specifically. Um, but the let's say our regulatory um, pessimism comes from the fact that Uh, the necessary permitting and planning and build-out that needs to happen has nothing to do with the technology. And when we talk about the energy transition, uh, it's very important to say, do we have the tools at hand? And our view is, yes, we have the tools at hand. And therefore, we actually last year, uh, as a consequence, made a report in connection with COP26, which, by the way, also can be downloaded for free, which is called the Pathway to Net Zero. And that means that with the given technologies you have in hand, you will find in that report, what does the 10 regions in the world need to do in order to make sure we deliver on Paris? This should be kind of the recipe of what needs to happen by when. And that means that seen from our point of view, the most important thing is that there's clear goals and target of what needs to be installed by when and where. And, and think therefore probably it's more a question of that we need to have this amount of renewables, this amount of grid, this amount of whatever in place by a given date. Uh, and this is maybe looking at the sort of the implementation in a different way. And we, I fully understand it's a very complex matter, but our message is just that it is not a technology challenge to decarbonize fast enough. It is, it is an implementation slash regulation challenge.
2: And you do a lot of work for government um, as well. I mean, you do consulting work for the private sector, but I've, I've actually mm-hmm. seen many of your reports for the European Commission, or uh, for yes. national governments, uh, and the kind of system thinking that you described, Diddlef, um, you know, where we kind of look at all the options for each of the applications and then work out the best, I think you called it, kind of an optimal portfolio of options mm-hmm. um, to decarbonize, really requires that different parts of government uh, talk to each other and come up with a joint plan that different pieces um, are being connected different um, parts of the industry sector also collaborate. Do you see enough of that happening already? Um, could we be doing more on that? Um, and, and where where do, uh, are we with that in, in, in terms of uh, you're designing this portfolio that you described? I
3: think to answer your question, the first thing I would say is this is not just an energy transition. This is also an industry revolution. And that means that also the tools that we use, what we tax, what we tax it for, uh, how we install, etc. It's actually, in my uh, view, a role of a prime minister more than a resort minister. Because the complexity of getting everything to, you could say, is not just energy system thinking, it's total regulation system thinking, which is required. And therefore, um, I had the pleasure for one year to be Denmark's special envoy for climate and energy. Uh, and at that time, I had an opportunity to participate in many political discussions. And I would say that for me, it's it's very evident that this has to come from the top of governments. It's the only way because, like, for instance, taxation, Uh, what should you price carbon on? Uh, Are we taxing the right things uh, if there needs to be a build-out? Should there be special incentives for that? Should there be special training for jobs? Uh, What about the education? I think one of the big challenges to make the energy transition reality is that we will have a shortage of people in terms of knowledge. So maybe you should ask your minister of education to scale up engineering in certain sectors dramatically to make sure that you will have not enough uh, people available for handling it. So I think you know the whole thing is tied into that this is a massive global transformation that needs to be tackled. And it cannot just be tackled by a minister of a given area of resource. It has to be a sort of... Both, probably by government level, but of course also on on, on e, EU uh, level or uh, and so forth.
1: If I may, what I see is that the problem to implement—I agree—there has to be somewhere. It has to be all put together. But what I see is um, when you're in the European Commission, you are bombarded with you know single perspectives. Pe- you know pe- uh, companies coming towards you, and hardly anyone is, you know, is lobbying you with an energy system in mind. Like, just to give an example, I worked a lot on green hydrogen, and then there there come proposals like we need to exempt them from network tariffs. No, because if we want to design the overall energy system, we want maybe to have a steer that they produce when you have more renewables. And then it's very difficult in the process when you have, you know, now, for example, the, the, the topic is hydrogen upscaling. At all means. And then, it, you know, and then you come, you, you're you confronted with, bombarded with those single requests and then have to have a lot of courage in the European Commission to go above it and say, no, I think overall this still is a good approach. So what? Do you, how do you think? I mean, you said uh, you said at some point you, you have 4,000 people in your shop on energy systems and you're the boss of 4,000 people. DTN had like 400. Yep. you know like
3: yeah so is this possible you know to do that well first I have to say that um, and I don't want to make this into a PR show for for DNV but first and <laughs> foremost uh, uh, our company was founded in 1864 and um, and it's based upon a clear uh, vision or let's say, a mission of safeguarding life, property, and the environment. That's what we do. And we are owned by an independent foundation. And that means that we are totally independent. We are not trying to advocate for any specific technology, any specific company. We look at the sort of task at hand. So when we, for instance, gave ourselves the task of saying, How do you create a pathway to net zero with what you have? And that's what we put in the report. So therefore, it's more a question of saying, okay, if we then, and of course, there are some assumption in this report, but if you would then play with the idea that that would be the cookbook for this, then it's no longer a question of should we have something. We should just say we should have so much offshore wind. We should have so much solar. We should have so much grid built out et cetera, et cetera, by this date. And then you would say, that is what we need to achieve. Now, then you can look at how do you then put that together rather than attacking it from a one-by-one. Because if you do it one-by-one, you won't be able to get there. That's why it's very complicated. And the best thing we feel we can do in DNV is to give the decision makers, and I understand it's very complicated, is to give them the assurance about the choices that they have to make. Yeah. And, and our view is, because whatever way we model it today, that if we just let, even if you look at our forecast, we will get to a world of 2.3 degrees centigrade, even though we'll see massive scale-up of renewables, for instance. So we have to understand that if we want to deliver on Paris, how much has to happen by when? And that means that not taking a decision can be a big decision, even though it doesn't feel like that. And, and, and our view is therefore, what can we do to give people technology confidence in the choices that need to be made? And that's why, so when I say we are technology optimistic, can you handle, for instance, a transition into hydrogen? Yes, a lot of things needs to happen because hydrogen has also a lot of safety issue that needs to be dealt with, but it is risk that can be managed and mitigated. And therefore we would like to say, People will push a lot of different issues, but we are not friends with any specific company or technology. We are looking at what will be the most cost efficient. And if you're going to get to Paris, how much would you have to do by when? So, for instance, a massive build out of the grid infrastructure is required. Mm -hmm. And so each country will then have to find out how do we do that. But you cannot make this if you don't, for instance, focus on everything at the same time, which is obviously not very nice because we as human beings Mm -hmm. would like to take it in step by step. But we have to understand here that this is a a moon landing approach that we need to have and we need to make sure we have all of it at the same time. Because otherwise we're not going to get there. So if the task at hand is we have to deliver on Paris, well then you have to put so many different things in motion and not have a debate about one technology against the other technology. And that's Kind of where we're coming from.
1: so what would you then tell someone? because I mean it sounds like quite centralized planning thinking from the back, you know from 2050 backwards. So um, but if you discuss it in the Brussels arena, very often you will hear, but then you're not technology neutral anymore. Like for example, when you would say hydrogen should be prioritized for how to decarbonize and then very often you hear politicians, but then you're not technology neutral anymore. What would you say?
3: I would say you have to you have to distinguish between what you can electrify, for instance, either through energy efficiency or what you could electrify directly. But you also need to respect and say that there are some, like the hard-to-abate sector, there are no other options. So we are, for instance, heavily involved also because DNV is the world's largest class society in maritime we are heavily involved in how to decarbonize the maritime sector. So obviously zero carbon shipping, where you can say we on one hand work with those who consume the hydrogen, where in energy systems that I work for, uh, we look at how to produce it. But both the off takers uh, and the producers, it has to go hand in hand. So otherwise you're gonna get into a mix. So of course you need to make sure that those things are are properly uh, connected. But I think it's, it's it's clear that we should let the reduction of CO2 emission be the deciding factor of how much has to go out by when and how fast. I mean, our view is that the 1.5 degrees centigrade window will close in 2029 unless we start to do something dramatically different because we keep hitting the snooze button uh, instead of waking up. And that's not a good strategy.
2: So, I like that that analogy quite a lot, um, You the sort of short-termist approach to policymaking that has gotten us into a really difficult situation in the first place. Um, I, I actually um, remember that DNV, I think it's from DNV GL, did a report in 2020 for Eurogas, so this is a couple of years back, looking at blue hydrogen for heating. And in that report, you're actually saying that blue hydrogen would be the cheapest, most cost-effective way for heating buildings in Europe. Um I mean, has your position sort of changed as a company on that, or is this a different part of DNV that you, you, you're not involved with directly? But that, that report was pretty um, outspoken um, as hydrogen being the cheapest option, wouldn't require building renovation, would avoid, el- ex- what they said, ex- expensive electricity grid upgrades. Um, and yeah, it's two years old now, but is, is, is that something that you're aware of? And, and uh, do you sort of stand by the results I'm just sort of... Trying to challenge you there a little sure. bit in terms of your, what you said before that electrification is it should take really? um, precedence. So
3: in this transition, we see that gas will play a major role, uh, and we will still. I mean, we are we have to decarbonize very fast, but we will have to use fossil fuel for a while, and uh, so in our view, gas will be an important part of the transition fuel. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to decarbonize as fast as we can but what is then realistic uh, in order to do so. Um, And I think also if you look now for the cost of gas, it's quite different compared to uh, what it was. And therefore, and also I think was mentioned by Michaela, that we have seen now that so much has happened on the hydrogen side that we will actually very soon come out with a new report on especially what's going to happen in the hydrogen system. So we will take a very deep look on hydrogen. So I would encourage you to tune in on that uh, and, uh, and and see what we come out with there. Because hydrogen has just in the last year, year and a half, taken a complete different offtake and interest that was not seen uh, back then. So um, so we are going to, to readdress, uh, readdress the issue also because many things have, have changed since then.
1: When you're readdressing it, um what what might be your you, you know the the EU's gas package still had this approach of um basically looking at how to decarbonize ga- the gas sector. Hmm. Do you think in the light of the latest de- developments and the probable unavailability of blue hydrogen or not a lot of hi- blue hydrogen, that and also to promote system thinking. You cannot do anymore Just think about how can I decarbonize my gas molecules, but you have to um, look beyond and say, okay, how can we decarbonize the whole thing?
3: Yeah, so, so, so this was exactly my point before um, that we keep talking about which technologies we should use, but actually the right discussion is to say how much CO2 or GHG reduction do we need to do every single year and deliver on that? Because that is actually the task at hand, not to use a given technology. And how would we then do that in the smartest and most cost-effective way?
1: Yeah.
3: So maybe just to give an example, and it's not just to praise my own uh, home country in Denmark, but we have set a target that the CO2 emissions, in order to be Paris compliant, have to be reduced by 70% by 2030. And what is very interesting about this approach is that you are now seeing that all the very difficult discussions, for instance, on agriculture and others, you have to deal with them now. You cannot press the snooze button because there is a a, a mandate from parliament that it has to be delivered by 2030, 70%. And then you need to look at, okay, so how do we then do? And this is where I think it's very important that it's only when we are really being pushed that creativity goes up. And so by setting these very tough standards that you have to deliver it very firm, then I think that will drive the biggest change in behavior and motivation. And may I also say finding new solutions. Um, so I think that it is more a question of how you go about it. And I think we also saw that when it come to the NDCs, the uh, nationally determined contributions, that people are making it probably, I don't know, but I assume probably are making it from a forecast looking ahead instead of moving in reverse and say, I have to be at this level by this date and then start to work backwards and say, okay, so what do I then need to do? I think that's where you will then find much better solutions rather than saying, okay, how much can I probably do?
2: I could just share an example from the conference, um, if I may. Um, I just had a roundtable discussion that was about the city of Winterthur in Switzerland. And it was absolutely fascinating. The the city had a vote... um, on um, by when they would want to phase out fossil fuel heating in Winterthur. Um, and more than 60% of the people voted for an early phase out. And now they decommissioned the gas grid. I think it's in the early 2030s, uh, which is, I mean, that's, that's only you know, a few years away. Yep. Um, but it's, everybody knows this is coming and the city is now planning for that. It's a very bold step and extremely challenging to implement. But that's the sort of thing I guess, that you're talking about to say, let's work backwards, you know, from what we need to achieve and then set, set the policy around that rather than starting with what we've got and do a little bit better, a little, little bit more incremental change uh, to reduce emissions. Um, so I, th- I think that really is the, a, a, a shift in our thinking, it, both in policy making and in industry and in civil society that we need to think big and, and, and design accordingly. So
3: I guess, so, you know, at least when we did the pathway to net zero, our view was that we can realistically, and we have to cut uh, the emissions by 30% in 2030. And uh, and therefore, whatever plans that are now put in place does not deliver on this, then obviously we you, you would have to redo them, I would say.
0: Hi everyone, David here again. Just a reminder that you and your colleagues can get premium access to the What Matters podcast and all of the in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy by subscribing you can give us a try for 30 days for just 29 euros where you can access our website and audio app go to www.forsightdk.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes now back to our conversation we've spoken of sort of a lot about um how regulation perhaps is not keeping up with with uh, the speed of um technical change Do we need to get regulation out of the way and policy out of the way? And can market forces be enough to get us to where we need to be if they have that target, if they have just simply have that target set and then it's up to the market to to make that happen? Is that a possibility?
3: I think that it's it's very much about mindset in the way that we address the challenge. Um, There was a famous uh, British Prime Minister who once said, It's not enough to to do, sometimes not enough to do your best. Sometimes you need to do what is required. (laughs) And I think that's exactly where we are. We have to do what is required. And I think it's also important to say that each and one of us as citizens, individuals, have a role to play to let the transition be enabled. So for instance, I mean, we've seen that number of times that if a government suggests to put up an onshore wind farm, you will in five minutes have a Facebook group that will hate looking at it. But the, but the alternative is not to have that wind turbine or not. The real alternative should be to read the IPCC report and then ask yourself, would you like to live in a world like this or would you prefer to look at a wind turbine? Because the discussion is not should or shouldn't we have it? Because what we're looking at will not stay the same. So I think the the transparency and the narrative of the challenge at hand also towards all the people involved is critically important. And I think therefore the the very interesting question now is that the plans that have been made by the EU for the EU tax uh, for the EU for Fit for fifty five cetera, whether or not the strategy in Ukraine will mean that energy security will be better understood and supported than, for instance, the reason uh, from climate. And I think that's the jury is still out, but that's what we have to wait and see. But again, the ability of the industry to deliver on it, if you put the right measures in place, are there. And this is critically important. We do not miss any technology answers in the box. But what we do miss is implementation.
2: You, you cited a British Prime Minister that did Let me cite um, Albert Einstein, and he has a great quote. Uh, I really like it quite a bit. And he said, um, you know, We cannot solve the problems we created with the same thinking that we used when we created those problems in the first place. And I think that there's so much about this quote that kind of sums up the discussion we, 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 we just had. Um, uh, um, I, I think you made some really good points around the need to think. Much bigger, uh, not just across the energy sector, but think about this as an economy-wide scale, um, and that, that clearly is what, what is what is what is needed. Um, um, I don't really have a question for you. I, I looking at David, I think he, he he looks to me like he has a good question in mind.
1: No, I have a question, exactly, in response to Albert Einstein. (laughs) um, So what do do you think, in order to change the way we think things, what do you think, what you see are the most important three things that we should recommend now, next week, in Repower EU? What are the three most important things that will ensure we do things differently?
3: I I think, um, first and foremost, we need to be clear on that this is It's labeled as energy, but it is much more than that. And maybe just to say, this is of course also about jobs. It's about job security. So it's also very much about explaining what kind of opportunities, new job opportunities will come. Like we have always seen that technology has cut off some industries and created new ones. And therefore, we should need to be very mindful of that this is uh, also an opportunity for creating a market and also outside the EU export opportunities for an entire planet that needs to electrify, not to forget that. So these are fantastic, also business opportunities uh, to further show how to scale with success. So this is very much sort of on the business side. And on the people side, and I would say obviously for public support. I think we should sometimes remember that it's that there is a clear trend for a, a big support of people sorting let's say supporting what is traditionally called the green. But what exactly is the definition of green? Mm-hmm. Uh I think everybody has a, a a sort of definition in mind, but it may not be the same one. And I think, therefore, the best thing we can do is not to hide it, but to be clear on what will that take? That will take, for instance, a massive build out of grid. That means that we need to look at wires hanging in the air. We need to have our garden sticked up or whatever. I think it's very important that we are honest about what Mm -hmm. it means because this is, but then the alternative is not, not to do it then you should explain what is then the alternative. And then you can start to explain what the alternatives are from the IPCC, et cetera, et cetera. It's not to scare people, but it's actually try to be transparent uh, of what we are dealing with. Uh, so I think that's the, the second one. And the third one is really, as I said, on the technology has so many things. And now today, uh, when we look at what we've gotten used to, how to use technology in our daily lives, if you go back... Some years, uh, I'm sure we could not even have imagined what technology can do for us. Imagine that COVID-19 had happened in the 90s when we were... Then, without
1: Netflix. Without, oh, my God.
3: <laughs> without Teams and whatever. And we would have to communicate either through uh, a, a landline telephone or a Telefax machine. Mm. I mean, the whole economy would have broken down. But thanks to that we are so digital as we are, we were man- we were able to handle that. And I think, therefore, we should not underestimate the role that technology and digitalization can play in this and that they are a solution that we will also develop as we go. The key question is to get going and not keep on making uh, good the enemy of great. And we have a very good starting point if we just deploy. Now, as was mentioned, I've been working in the wind industry, and I can remember that when we did our first three megawatt offshore machine, we thought, that's big. That's really big. And this is about 10 years ago, and now they are 15 megawatts. So, and I'm sure that 10 years ago, none of us would have believed that that would have been possible. So I think we should not underestimate what we can do, but technology is very interesting in the way that it evolves that the more that we use and focus on it. And that's how we find new solutions. So the key question here is not to discuss, as I said, and hit the snooze button. The key issue is to keep going and you will lay the tracks as you run, but you have to use the carbon reduction as the only driving parameter of making sure that you get to your goals. Because the American have this wonderful expression, which is called a B-hack, which is big, hairy, audacious goals. And it's when you set those and you think big, you drive yourself to a new thinking and narrative that if you just move step by step.
2: We actually don't just need to not hit the snooze button. We need to get rid of it entirely. So you can't hit it, I think. That, that's the next step, isn't it? Sunday morning, it's quite nice. <laughs> yes, only for alarm clocks. Um, <laughs> indeed. But I don't set my alarm on a Sunday morning usually. I, I, I keep that off. Yeah.
1: Can I ask something? I totally agree, but let me break it down to practice. Again, we are discussing at the moment green hydrogen, and there we wanted to have a re- as close as possible real time connection between the electrolyzer and what happens in the grid. You know, is it high CO two or low res, and then ideally have a good production pattern. And apparently, there's no digital solution that would allow a producer to do that. So. You know, and that's one of the resistance. And you said that no, we cannot stop the, we cannot uh, push snooze here. We need to go ahead. But then these people say, but how am I supposed to implement it? What would you say? I mean, we had this discussion about digitalization also And Greg Jackson from my Octopus. He said similar things. He said, we just, just go for it. The market will develop. But you see, then when you are confronted with an issue like this, where people say, I don't know how to do this. What would you then suggest to a policymaker?
3: First, I would say, if you then should look at both from carbon, but also from offtake. So let me just use uh, shipping as an example. Um, some months ago, um, the uh, then chair of Merskline he mentioned that he had asked his technical team to say, what will it cost if our big container ship sailing from Asia to Europe was running 100% on on carbon-free fuels. And he obviously got a very big amount. Then he said, okay, so if we now take that and divide over the total cost of the cargo, how much more will a consumer then have to pay? And he said, well, a pair of sneakers will then for a European customer cost 50 euro cents more. And But instead, you would get the, the transport free. And that is, of course, before a technology has been scaled. All technologies need to be scaled in order to get cost efficient. And therefore, the key question is not what you pay today. The key question is, that like I mentioned before on wind, can it be really scaled to a very higher level? And I think this is what you... And when I say I'm technology optimistic the decision-making and the target setting shouldn't be based on the cost today, but it should be based upon a technology that can be scaled, i.e. that you can get the components. And secondly, every time you scale it, how much do you then bring down the cost? And the moment you approach it in this way, just like we did on offshore wind, just like we are going to do on the EVs, etc., then you will see the cost curve come down. But somebody has to kickstart it and be able to see that And I think this is really exactly where we are on the green hydrogen discussion, that there will now soon be created a market. And all of a sudden, we will also see that the cost will start to come down significantly more because the demand will be created, just like for EVs. So I think that's, but, but we tend to look at what is the cost today, and then we multiply it with something. And this is exactly what the ETO addresses. The ETO addresses that what will it give you in terms of cost when you make this happen? So let me just say that in this total model we did from cost point of view, it meant that we are today spending about three and a half, four percent of global GDP uh, on energy. And if you did the pathway to net zero, as we suggest, you would actually spend less of GDP than you do today. And the reason for that is obviously it will be more efficient, but also it will be cheaper because you will keep getting more for the dollar or for the euro whether it is for what you pay for grid, or what you pay, for instance, for a production of a kilowatt hour from a solar panel or wind turbine or the storage in a battery, because all of it are technologies where it hasn't really taken off yet. Even the renewables are at the end of the beginning. And we have to remember that when we scale them at an unprecedented pace, we will also see that the cost will be even more favorable for us going forward. And that's how we should think about the modeling.
0: Absolutely. Um, I think we're sadly beginning to run out of time. And obviously we want to get all of our questions to you, Delev. Um Before we go, we'd be really interested to see if you could look into your crystal ball and decide, uh, and describe to us what you think the energy landscape would look like in 10 to 20 years' time.
3: I am a stubborn optimist. And, uh, I fundamentally believe we will see a massive electrification. I think we will see a massive build out of renewables. We will see uh, that and we will understand the value of this. And I think we therefore will see something, call it an, an, an uh, industry revolution that will happen. And as I said before, we are at the end of the beginning. And uh, and the key question is really just to engage, and then I'm sure we will be able to surprise ourselves even positively of what we can achieve. But the key question really is to get going.
1: I hear DNV stands for the Norwegian truth. Let that be the Norwegian truth. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Absolutely. I think that's a really good point to end on. Uh, finally, and before we go, I'd like to go around the table and see what caught our eye this week. Uh, any sort of news or reports or graphs or tables or social media posts that really uh, stuck with us. Uh, Michaela, what caught your eye this week?
1: Colleagues working on a topic that is not in a focus at the moment on plastic and plastic waste. Uh, and they found out that in Europe, we, we generate about Twice the amount that we kind of assumed we were generating, um, and meaning that although you you at home when you sort and you sort your waste, you have the impression all gets recycled. It's actually only fifteen percent of the waste that is recycled, and if we don't change this, basically the CO two emissions of the landfill and the burning uh, will at some point look like from an energy intensive sector. So uh, an often overlooked area which I thought was very interesting. So it, the, the, the title was like Europe's missing plastic or
0: something. Yeah, really interesting plastic. Obviously a huge um, huge problem for the environment. Um, and But the recyclability of it, the circular economy, obviously something really interesting. And uh, lots of
2: uh, great work going there. Uh, Jan, what we'll caught your eye this week? Well, it, I must mention the announcement by the German government to bring forward the date by which it will no longer be possible to install uh, gas or oil heating system in buildings. I think it's 2024 now, which is a new uh, deadline. Um, after that, you can only install heating systems uh, if you have at least 65% renewables, which is a massive intervention in the market. And just speaking to people here at the conference and industry, uh, yeah, there's a lot of excitement, but it's also hugely challenging. Um, but this is the kind of um, step that I think will make a huge difference to the sector. It will be quite disruptive and very hard to achieve. But I think it sends the right message and uh, is, is certainly something that we will see more of. Other countries are considering similar options. So that, that that's the one for me this week. Yeah, absolutely. I shows that. Yeah, that ambition that um, Ditlev was talking about.
0: Ditlev, what caught your eye?
3: So, I'm sorry, it has to be a Norwegian perspective. Uh, Yesterday, the Norwegian Prime Minister announced a 30 gigawatt offshore wind uh, in Norway uh, going forward. So, that is a massive build-out and that is uh, also going to be constructed not just for Norway, but also for the European system. So, I think that's a a very nice BHAG, uh, uh goal that is coming from there. So, uh, so, and that's just uh, super exciting. And these are the kind of big thinking that we need. So, I think really here it has been big thinking and and, and very exciting.
0: Mm. And that's from practically zero capacity today. Is that right? Yes.
3: Yeah. 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 They have they have a little uh, floating uh, on a but a small scale. So this is a uh, super mm. exciting.
0: Mm. Really interesting. Uh, from me, then, just finally, um, it was a report in the Economist uh, this week about um, how uh, the the introduction of flywheels into the UK grid in in a bid to boost grid inertia uh, to maintain a stable grid. Um, but one particular bit that was uh, really uh, stuck with me is the rather than um, installing brand new flywheels, is the using the inert using a retrofitting existing vo- uh, oil and gas Sorry, existing fossil fuel plants uh, that will provided the inertia previously, uh, and yeah, retrofitting them to, to use their uh, flywheels and their inertia, the way they they produce the inertia, obviously without the fossil fuels, uh, in order to boost the grid stability. Um, something really interesting and again. I think it fits in with the whole um, discussion around sort of system thinking. We can't just add more and more renewables without actually considering the grid. Uh, and how it, how it operates. Um, my thanks to uh, Ditnev, Jan, and Michaela, and our new producer, Anna Gumbau. If you have any thoughts or questions about anything we have said on today's podcast, you can reach us on our Twitter accounts. You can reach DNV at DNV Energy System. I'm on at DaveW underscore foresight. Jan. I'm on Jan Rosenau. And Michaela.
1: Citizen Sane 1. Uh,
0: you can also tweet the show at What Matters Pod or email us at show at whatmatterspodcast.com. We had an email uh, this week from one listener who said he missed his train because he was so um, enamored with one of our recent podcasts. So please do keep him, keep those conversations coming in uh, and any questions that you have. Uh, thank you, Dilev. Thanks, everybody. And we'll speak to you again very soon.